Hi, and welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast. I'm Dustin, joined of course by Christian. I'm CP. How's it going today? Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm very excited for our guests. I we have too. a lot of good discussion topics and uh, movies we want to talk about, so should be fantastic. I'll throw it over to you. Go ahead and do a little introduction, and let's welcome to the show. This is my good friend, writer and director, Harrison Reichman. Thank you, Christian. Pleasure Thank to be you here. so much Thank for coming for on the show. Here. Thank you, yeah. Dustin. I'm really excited. Let's get right into it. Obviously, you grew up in West Virginia. I did. That is not like an area that most people uh, think of when they think about developing filmmakers. Not traditionally, <laughs> no. No, not traditionally. No, shoot, shooting their horror films there, potentially. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I've driven through West Virginia once. Beautiful, right? Oh, it's like the most green I've ever seen in my life. Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it. unbelievable. Yeah. What is it like as a filmmaker being there? Well, as as a filmmaker, were you like like the one and only in like your part of the state, or, or like as a kid, can you shoot stuff even? Or yeah, I mean we've all we've all seen the movie Super Eight, which was actually mm-hmm. shot in West Virginia in the Northern Panhandle. Growing up, I didn't know that I wanted to be a filmmaker yet. Okay, because growing up in a rural area, it didn't even seem like that was a possibility. Like we watched the screen, we didn't know that there was something behind the screen. Yeah, you I know can get that, that. There, that I can there was get a that. whole process. Yeah. So my first real contact with filmmaking was a blockbuster, going to the local, <laughs> okay. going to the local rental. Yeah. You know, rent, RIP. Rent, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Going to those uh, rental companies and, and seeing the boxes, seeing the movies, and then, you know, reading the back on the stories. And so yeah. it's really about the stories and the experiences and being transported from places yeah. that you're not in, which I think any person in a rural area can relate to, okay. even in a post blockbuster era. You know? <laughs> there's there's, yeah. there's Netflix. It's, it's all about the, the experience of where your imagination can take you. Yeah. And so for me, it was about kind of discovering that you can tell these stories. Not until college did I discover filmmaking itself, but I feel like West Virginia, my upbringing, certainly aids itself to what I bring to my films. And what was your town? Uh, it was Hurricane. Hurricane. Hurricane, West Virginia. And that's shout out to Hurricane. Yeah, <laughs> shout out to Hurricane. They deserve it. They're a great, great community. Little town. Super supportive. West Virginia had local local arts as like a big part of its community. Really? So that was that was something that I was always big into. While I wasn't into filmmaking, folk art is huge. So I really got into a lot of wood carving art, yeah. and working with wood oh, cool. and marble, and doing a lot of installation art. Yeah. That was, yeah. that, that's what I did yeah. as a child. Okay. So you always have had a background as an artist. You always just had a background as an artist. Change changed the medium. Was telling stories. You know, again, was in installation art. You know, as a child was was something that had a life of its own that I would always try to explain to people but they would just see the image that I created you know and for me it was like oh I didn't know that I could then foster some of these skills into a whole career and and it didn't it didn't happen in West Virginia only because I didn't go to college there well we did have you know um, an education system I seemed to benefit from you know I I definitely got strengths from from my teachers Mm -hmm. and and good people in the community ultimately we didn't we didn't have anything that was like oh well this uh, this is the auto CAD class or this is the filmmaking class there was nothing that could even nudge you in a direction of all these technical sure. skills or the world that existed in these kind of artistic paths so oh, that's understandable so yeah it was um, and, and it's still the case so that's why I always try to support the arts there go 
going back to the West Virginia Film Festival this year. Oh, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so um, always trying to re-engage the community and keep the arts alive, keep awesome. filmmaking yeah. you know, current in the state. No, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that actually, I mean, that rings true for me personally because in high school, my good friend Sean and I were part of a first film class. And I'm from uh, Granger, Indiana, but South Bend, where Notre Dame is. Uh-huh. And we actually, at our high school, we were part of the first film festival they hosted it at Notre Dame. We got to do this big like movie premiere. Everybody's movie was shown on the big screen, but it was like really cool as a kid to go through that experience. It's like wonder getting to see your own movie on the big screen. Yeah, just supporting the arts. Such a big deal. I mean, it makes a difference. It does. It really does. Then you went to the other Virginia. I went to for, the other For Virginia. college. Yeah, the rival Virginia. I defected Virginia's. Yeah, went there for college. I will forever now refer to it as that. Like when I'm doing the 50 states, I'm like, West, uh, the other Virginia. The other Virginia, yeah. you, you still were not thinking of film when you went to the University of Virginia. I was not. No, uh, freshman year, I started off on a chemical engineering track. Okay, that's about yeah. the farthest thing from filmmaking I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, quickly discovered, quickly discovered that that was not the field for me when, <laughs> when um, my English class was uh, telling a story about a pipette, uh, you know, um, that you would use in a chemistry lab. Yeah. That, that was it. You know, tell the story about this pipette. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I did a little hopping around, eventually settled in psychology, and then um, the business school there, you couldn't apply to until your junior year. We call okay. it our third and fourth year at okay. UVA, because okay. that's, that's how we do it there. First, yeah, second, third, so. fourth. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so, got to be different. <laughs> got to be different, just a little different. And so, yeah, ended up transitioning from chemical engineering and the engineering school to ultimately business and double majoring in psychology. I think that's fascinating. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as a filmmaker, does having a background in psychology give you a leg up or a different insight when you're writing or working with actors or have you never thought about it oh overthinking right now no you're, you're not overthinking it at all i'm we all are in the business of working with crazy people so <laughs> um so I, I feel like i'm quite quite uh, apt for for the field but in terms of how it shaped me as a filmmaker and as an artist yeah there's there's something certainly about character-driven stories and understanding yeah. the psychology of a yeah. person, of people. You know, That's why when I did my first short film or got commissioned for my sh- first short film, it was Dostoevsky that inspired me. You know, yeah. what's the psychology Who behind understands these psychology of people yeah. than Dostoevsky? Yeah, precisely, precisely. So it was, it's about trying to understand the, the flaws and the beauty in, in humans and humanity, at least for me. Yeah. And then the business aspect is not only just like me putting my producer cap on, but trying to figure out the arena to tell these stories to tell each individual story gotcha. so that it can find a market I don't want anybody's time to be wasted in a project and I don't right. want the end result to be missed the end result doesn't have to be you know on the level of end game or, or, or something <laughs> but but it, it's just about finding an audience and, and having the art matter well I think that's really smart because I feel like and, and Dustin and I have this conversation all the time so many artists or a filmmaker come at this from the perspective of I, this is my vision. I want to make my vision. I want to make, you know, this is my artistic vision. And they seem to forget the whole other side of the business, which is, well, you're taking money from people. You need to find a way to make that money back. Who actually is going to care about your art? Is there a market for it? And so it seems like from you, from your perspective, if you can kind of fall back onto that that business mindset as you're going through the creative process, it seems like Every project you make, it seems like, is going to have a better chance of going some, coming to completion if you're thinking of it throughout the pre-production and production process. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, every everything needs to 
to have a target. One of the things that kind of surprised me in, in recent times, especially in the short film world, a lot of people commit to short films that never make it through the post-production process. Never I believe make, it. Never make it to a finished product. I believe it. And even films, that happens. A lot of art projects, whenever you're collaborating with other people, this can always happen. I've learned that early, also knowing that that's very common out here. I've, I've always tried to make sure that everything can have, can live on some platform. Art is the eternal, and if you don't complete it, then nobody ever knew what you were aiming for. Yeah, you know? no, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher in school who said, the uh, road to hell is paved in unfinished movies. And I think that is very true. If you're if you're a filmmaker, that is. You obviously are not coming at this industry from a film school background. Correct. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that prepares you better for success? Do you think that's a disadvantage? Do you I, you I, can totally slam film school if you want? Like we don't. No, care. I, I, well, I think everybody's different. But I think for me, I don't I don't need a structured environment for myself to to find work or to try to figure things out, mm -hmm. you know? So I didn't feel like I needed classes in filmmaking for me to learn filmmaking. I didn't realize until really in college, you know, everybody has to work a job. And so, you know, find this job that you're most passionate about. Okay. And they say, you know, find the job that you like and you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's bullshit because I've found what I love and it still is work. <laughs> um, yeah. And it still is responsibility, but it is what I truly love and care about. And so kind of using that, my inspiration, my drive is what has fueled me. And I think that especially where we are now and in the 21st century, the opportunities for anybody to be an independent filmmaker and then rise to more traditional or studio positions is available to them because the economy, the economies of scales have come down mm -hmm. so far yeah. that people can edit a film on their laptop if they need to. People can shoot a movie on their iPhone. Yeah. Microphone technology, which is a huge part yeah. of filmmaking. Yeah. Making. I mean, yeah. sound, sound, camera... You know, we're, we're willing to forego a lot of things, but in terms of what do you need to make a movie, it's never been more in-house for an individual than ever. Yep. And so that's really what's lended itself to me as an opportunity. Bought a camera, invested in a computer, and in terms of what we need to make a movie, you know, it's a story, it's actors, mm -hmm. and... And it's the will. Yeah. And so if you have those things, then you can. Not going to film school, I have noticed a bit of a tendency of people that have gone to film school, not to knock everybody that's gone to film school, but there has been a bit of a mentality of, I wasn't trained for that. Not like I didn't learn that in class, but like, that's not my job. Yeah. And so like, in terms of like being a team player, gotcha. you know, like I, I remember on both my shorts, you know, um, my wonderful AD advised me on some things that I shouldn't do on a traditional set. And, and he was absolutely right. But where I was coming from was to get the job done. Yeah. You gotta you do know? whatever you gotta do. And they weren't safety concerns. It wasn't yeah. anything yeah. that was, you know, but it was just like in terms of professionalism and what to expect in bigger sets. And, and, you know, not that I want to disregard that advice. It just certainly tells me that, you know, that is more of a traditionalist attitude. And there were instances in a lot of ways where I haven't felt that people that have gone to film school want to learn every component. They, they've really tried to... Um, to be more in service of a particular craft. So it sounds to me, Please. tell me if I'm putting words here, but it sounds like from your perspective, film school in some ways does a disservice in preparing people for kind of the 
indie film world that most people kind of start out in. Absolutely. Just in the sense that you aren't prepared to be wearing multiple hats. Well, in film school, everybody is given generally no budget to make a thesis film. Yeah. And so they all have to, you know, wear multiple caps. But I think they all are more determined to... I guess you could say that academia is kind of instilled in them. They should be focused on this one thing. Yeah. You know? And when you're in this role, be focused on that one thing. So that when they're finally in that one role, they're focused on that one thing. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, that's great. But there's these other things that are also going around. Yeah. And, and so it's a little bit of that mentality of yeah. everybody just, you know, wearing the specific hat. I, I've found also that there's a little bit of a difference between craftsman filmmakers and artistic filmmakers. And so like some of the people that I've put on my crew would easily call themselves a writer or a director or producer. And those are the caps that I wear on my production sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't try to disregard them as those artists even right. though they're wearing the DP cap that day. Yeah. You know, yeah. I want them to bring what they know as right. a writer to their DP role without them, you know, giving yeah. me their script. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, so you have to walk the line. Yeah, they walk the line, but but I I find value in that. You know, I, there's there's things to juggle, but I think you get some beautiful moments when you bring people that that are looking at it from many different perspectives with an artistic yeah. eye yeah. as opposed to crafting it just the way that I tell them. Yeah. You know, because I do like sense. that collaboration. I do mm-hmm. like to see what sure. somebody can bring. Well, while I can always dictate, I'm, I'm not going to claim that I'm a great dictator. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in this. Uh-huh. Going from Virginia to L.A., that's a little bit of a big geographic move there. Uh-huh. At what point in your filmmaking career, I'm assuming the beginning, did you decide, I got to go to the West Coast. I got to go to L.A. I got to be in the thick of it. It was, all of this really was was a revelation my, my fourth year. I took an arts administration course. First day, they talked about producing a play. And that's when I realized that even producing, like the business of telling a story was a thing. And it took until my fourth year to really kind of make those items click yeah, in my head. Right. I was I was focused on advertising. And I, realized, and I was looking at the big cities for that. So yeah. I already realized like, okay, to have you know some of the jobs that I'd pined for might have to go to a big city. Once I learned the art behind storytelling and that LA was the hub for it, then it was just a definitive, there's only one life to live and I'm going to go to the center. Everybody asked me, because my business school was very successful in placing people and I was one of the few, if maybe only people to leave uh, the program without a job. Hmm. Like without a job, without like a, without a nice job. the kind of job that people are like comparing what they're getting in the 401k package yeah um i um drove out you know it was really about picking which freeway and you know (laughs) what you know what kind of scenic view did i want to have yeah do the southern or northern so i right down the middle okay yeah which was kind of boring and don't necessarily (laughs) recommend all the viewers no uh no, no no disregard to kansas (laughs) <laughs> but um, yeah, that that was that was the, like the biggest choice that I had to make once I knew. So I knew heading into my final semester that I was going to move out west, and that That's nobody cool. was going to care about me until I moved out here. Yeah, because being on the other end of it now for 13 years, and then I did end up hiring a lot of interns at one point. It's all it's all moot until people are here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of because so many people want to come here, and then so many people talk about the like. It's all so much talk. And yeah, so you've got to see exactly. who's actually acting on it. I moved out here June of 08, not knowing anybody, and uh, found my place on Craigslist. I, <laughs> I, I stayed with a friend for a week, and uh, after that, you know, that was 
that was a, a nice, nice enough extension. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, stayed, stayed in Culver City for the next six years. Um, wow. But then, uh, you know, it took me, took me a good five months to get an industry gig. I didn't have any industry experience on my resume. Yeah. I applied to production companies, mm-hmm. management companies, uh, agencies, all with a resume that was quite well qualified for something potentially on Wall Street or yeah. in DC. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it didn't cater to the film business. Yeah. And HR even was calling me saying, Yeah, there's nothing here. You're great. There's nothing here that allows me to bring you in for Dang. an interview. Um, double, double major too, yeah. you know, and like uh, the kind of thing. It's like, well, I'm not putting my GPA on there anymore. Nobody cares. Like nobody cares about any of these things. Yeah. And so I, I did some hustling. I did some temp work. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, to make you know, the ends meet, I was short order cooking and oh, doing okay. that at restaurants, <laughs> working in an Irish pub, and nice. kind of living the life of a recent college grad. <laughs> um, but it was it was odd that again. I moved out here and the best option, one of the best options was working at a temp agency. And then from that temp agency, what was the possible best opportunity? Working in a mail room. I mean, we could have been a hundred years ago and these would still be the career advice. So it's yeah. just kind of, it's just kind of odd. It's actually, like, it's weird. Cause I've heard the mail room a lot. Mm-hmm. I remember I was meeting with a VP at Paramount. He's like, yeah, the best way to get into this company is to start working at the mailroom. That's what our CEO did. And I was like, I didn't think anyone did that since like the 80s, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently it's good. What was, so where did you start working in the mailroom at and what was that like? So that's just it. The mailroom is the mailroom. <laughs> like the mailroom is the mailroom. There's no like, oh, here's my desk at the mailroom. It's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> this is where the mail gets sorted. And these are the people that you're with. Um, for me, it was actually a great experience because we had just entered the writer's strike. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that, I remember that. that. Okay. Yeah. So the writer's strike that took place in, uh, 07, 08. 07, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I, yeah, I moved out here in 07 and then from 07 to 08, uh, the writer's strike at UTA put a hiring freeze on everybody every agency every production company everybody was kind of at a standstill so it became a bit of like a fraternity for me in my mailroom class if you could call it that like people that were looking to and to describe the position a little bit mailroom was a position where you would sort the mail and you'd put together um, press books where it'd be headshots for casting books so you okay. would, you would be either taking mail to people in the office, delivering mail to celebrities out of the office, or you're putting together um, uh, packages from your client base to send to casting directors for features. That was okay. kind of the, the gist three. of it, the three things. Okay. And then why would you be in a mailroom? Because it's all an opportunity and a breeding ground to then become an assistant. So gotcha. you know, there's all these different departments in an agency. And so how do people network out of the mailroom? As opposed to getting trapped there forever, is there a, is there a secret to that success? Or there's when you're in the mailroom, you're in the mailroom, <laughs> meaning like you've been vetted enough that you're gonna find a desk. You know, yeah. you might find a desk with the like the department that they've housed in the basement, mm-hmm. and your boss might be the guy with or the or woman with the dingiest office. Yeah, 
But that'll soon, if you, in a year's time, if you haven't found a home in the mailroom yet, they'll find you that home. Okay, nice. You know? okay. Because you're in the system, you're vetted, and you've proven some of yourself. It's, yeah. It, yeah. I, I cannot think of an instance where somebody got into the mailroom and never made it onto a desk. That was not the purpose of it. The purpose okay. of it was really to find you a home once you're in this, once you're in our home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's almost like, you know, going to college and for the first full year, you can only take liberal arts. You can't specialize. Yeah. And now you can specialize. And matter of fact, since I left UTA, like the year after, they called it UTA University, which <laughs> like probably even describing now what the mailroom is makes sense yeah. in, in what they went forward with in, in their in their plan because... Like, Self-aware. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, oh, do I want to work in marketing? Do I want to work in music? Do I want to work in reality? And... For me, I remember my first conversation with an executive at HBO that has worked on so many of their big productions on the physical production end. When I told her I wanted to be a producer because I like telling stories, well, first off, I mean, that those aren't two of the same thing, telling, <laughs> telling stories and a producer. And, then, and not that a producer can't tell stories, but she just said, well, what kind of producer? Because I can already think of 10 to 12 different types of producers. Yeah. Like, what type of producer do you want to be? Yeah. And so, like, it just kind of floored me. Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of person that if I don't have an answer, I stay quiet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. And uh, I then went into the mailroom and started to learn all these different aspects of, of what it takes in the industry to be on a call with somebody that's a talent rep and to hear how they talk to a casting director and to learn that world and learn that world in the course of a day that I didn't kind of know existed and sure. to learn the the familiarity and the lexicon that they use. Yeah. Like all of that was like really helpful. So it actually gives you really good firsthand insider knowledge of really the backbone. If of you the industry. If, if you can muster it, it's worth it. And what I mean by that is it's um it's mentally uh, taxing. Okay. It's a. It's. Um, I don't know what it's like. Like almost a decade since I've gone through it, but you know, the sex, the drugs, the, the rock and roll. You know, like, <laughs> it's. It, it. I mean, and no, no specific stories that wouldn't be a story at any other agency. That's just kind of it. But yeah. like, hadn't haven't been spoken to in a way. Yeah, ever in a professional setting, I was <laughs> at the agency. Yeah, um, and then some of the stories that you hear about, yeah. you know, and some of the things that I might have been like even you know duplicitly involved in, you know, like yeah. it's like oh I didn't wouldn't have thought, and and so like to be in that environment, and I've hired a lot of people that have come from agencies, and I've put a lot of people up for agencies. A lot yeah. of people don't get up for the agencies, and I can almost pinpoint immediately who those people are. Yeah. And, and it involves um, their willingness to take a hit on the chin, figuratively, mm-hmm. and their willingness to be in the business at any cost. Gotcha. And if you can take a hit on the chin and be in the business at any cost, you can be in an agency. Okay. Um, but that's a very specific type of person, and that doesn't, you know, not every storyteller or or camera operator or actor should heed the advice of a mailroom because like that's that, that that's just a very specific type of person yeah. um and thankfully with my business background i was able to do it even though i'm am more of an artist i think me transitioning to where i am now starting in an agency is kind of 
atypical a mm. little bit because yeah. it was such on the business end, the behind the scenes. Yeah. And then I slowly realized more and more like, oh, this is not this is not where I want to be. All from the mailroom. So once yeah. you left the mailroom, where where were you off to then? Um, so I worked on a TV lit desk, uh, worked that for a couple months, and then which is very common. Next gigs, so much of being an assistant in an agency is about the next job. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit of advice. Uh, don't be too good of an assistant because nobody wants to get rid of too good of an assistant. <laughs> but um, I uh, then get a call from an executive producer that had a pilot script set up at HBO and was looking for an assistant for him and another EP. And uh, I didn't know at the time that a pilot script at HBO meant you were kind of in contention with 400 other projects. <laughs> but, but I did have the, the, the knowledge of the agency that I was at. It was the same client from the desk that I was on. And the head of the TV lit department had just gone to become the president at HBO. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. so I was getting a good feeling about this project. And yeah. I wanted to, at the time, I knew I wanted to get more involved in production. So I made the jump. And okay. so when he asked me, he actually called me to let the entire agency know about this position. Because that is the common thing. If you want an assistant, you'll let sometimes the agency know and then they'll blast it out. Right. And so I threw my hat in and I got the job. Nice. Um, and no so way. that was at a company called Blueprint Entertainment that later became Entertainment One. Okay. 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 And so you could say that I was at Entertainment One for eight years. From, oh, wow. From assistant to then manager or executive level. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. So that's crazy. Working at Entertainment One, you're doing development work. Correct. Right. Can you talk uh-huh. about any of the projects that you were in development on? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that TV uh, uh, pilot script at HBO became the show Hung with and Tom so, Jane. With Tom Jane. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so worked on that for three seasons, um, and then uh, got involved early on the development of an AMC project that later became Hell on Wheels. Oh, dude, so that's cool. Five yeah. seasons of Hell on Wheels. Um, then. Uh, Kind of got involved in a plethora of other TV concepts, you know, a lot of half hours, um, some hours and some sci-fi shows, some broadcast. But as far as like my sensibilities, those were like the two shows that I kind of sent my teeth into. Yeah. And then in terms of development, because everybody's like, oh, what shows did you work on? It was my job to launch shows. And yeah. then I wiped my hands because, yeah. you know, I didn't realize until I was kind of in the belly of the beast that there's a whole department called the current department. And they keep the show current. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, like, my job was to tee them up and to set them up and yeah. to package them yeah. um, to get that, that inciting incident, to get that pilot script, to get that backdoor project yeah. at, at the network, to find the home, to get that pilot made. Mm-hmm. But then once it was a pilot or once it was um, a, a, a finished uh, concept, in terms of where it can be in serial, serialization, then I was done. So what are your biggest takeaways now as an artist? What do you think you took away the most from that developmental process? Did it help you get a better idea of what it takes to pitch a project and yeah. get one picked up? Is it, yeah. Do you think you became a better writer or all of a it. filmmaker? Like, all like, of it. All of it. Because every idea starts with the development of it. And so 
no idea. I mean, were you directly taking pitches from, from so, people? Like, was yes. that one of the, Yeah, oh, so wow. I, was, I, I mean, my day was littered with creative ideas from other people. You know, just, I mean, I, I at one point, I broke down at least in theory how many ideas I heard, and it was well over 10,000. Oh my gosh. You know, know, just like well over to the point where like, I just don't want to keep thinking about it. Yeah. Um, That's okay. And, and it would come in term in forms of log lines from an agent. Okay. One email, five log lines, five ideas right there. Yeah. Um, A script that I then have to go home and read a pitch meeting where Mm -hmm. two ideas are thrown at me. Yeah. So, you know, it happened all the time. All of the things that I received were vetted. Okay. So what did I learn from this? Nothing is original. (laughs) Nothing is original. Like everything is a variation on something that we have seen before and own it and embrace it. And, and I try to push these elements as far as we can without being completely abstract in terms of my filmmaking. But like, that's what I've learned that, you know, I'm trying not to be, not to be too, precious with encroaching on someone else's space if i can find if i can find a specific slant you know um i don't try to get stifled on um you know oh well it's you know we've seen that before we've seen so many things before and i'm not saying that it can't you know can't be completely unoriginal most things are unoriginal but that's the point like yeah you know yeah. most things are unoriginal because we've seen it so many times before so i don't get caught up in that. so can i add do you have any advice mm-hmm. to the rest of us out here who are thinking i'm gonna pitch a show do you have three points that everyone should know in if they're gonna go to a pitch meeting to make yeah. sure that you yeah. don't fall into that trap of i just listened to ten thousand yeah. ideas and they're all unoriginal um <laughs> how can you stand apart well, the first is, I guess, know know the me- know the medium that you want it to exist on. Okay. Okay. So, is it a feature? Um, if it's a feature, is it a, is it a feature film? Is it a, is it a short film? Um, if it's a feature film, then come in and pitch the feature film. If you come in and pitch pitch the franchise, I'm at a place now where I'm going to kick you out of my office because like I have to see the first one and it has to be successful. If we're already talking about number 2 and 3, you're wasting my time. Okay. Yeah. Um and so like that's something that people always misrepresent. They, yeah. they will come in and they will or or not misrepresent, but they um they um try to like oversell it or like they they oversell it. They oversell it to the point where it could be the TV show, it is the movie. Here's the social media campaign. Here's the poster, mm-hmm. you know. I need a, I need a logline. I need a character. I need a script. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't care about your goddamn hashtag. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and that's something that I certainly find to become more and more common in the era of social media. People feel like they need to hinge on that, and everything starts with a good story. Still. Yeah. Yeah. And it will always yeah. be about a good story. What's the best place for this story to exist? If you say, well, it's really a feature, but I don't know how it ends, so I'm thinking TV. Boom. Kick you out of my Yeah, you've like, told me that before. That's that's another one. That's like, again, that's not that's not well thought through sure. enough, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, if, again, working in development, I did develop a lot of completed features as then launching them for TV series. 
that's built on the success of the IP that people are then familiar with. You right. know? Like, yeah. It's it's way too premature to be in my office where I still have to talk to my bosses and we're talking about sequels and social media campaigns. Yeah. Okay. And so like that's that's where I think some people get disconnected. Okay. Um, another great thing, and I just kind of alluded to it, generally the person you're pitching to is not the person that's the buyer. Okay. okay. You know, I if I, if I I mean TV is is its own um, is its own machine where it's it's millions for anything. Yeah. It's millions for anything. Yeah. And so you're if even if you're a producer, you're going to a studio, you know, or you're going to the streaming service that could buy it. You know, you're yeah. not you're not meeting the indie producer or the investor at a bar that could give you your money for your film. Yeah. You know, those these yeah. are different conversations. So yeah. in the world of TV, you're never pitching really to the person that can buy unless you're the showrunner EP level and so brought them in. What's the best way to get around that? Is it to make sure that your your ideas are, are concise and digestible? And, and is that when it's really important to say you're, you know, it's, it's RoboCop meets Mr. Mom, like, you know, is that where all those things become it become so important? So that that way, it's not the idea is not lost in translation after you've heard thirty pitches in a day, and you go on to your boss and brilliant. You're absolutely right. I want to do RoboCop meets Thanks. Mr. Mom. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Okay. No, that's, I mean that's good advice. You know, one of the things that I kind of joke about is that like Christopher Nolan made my life a little easier in TV development because like so many people were bringing me like these dream projects, and it's like you know until Inception came out, it's like well, I, I can't really like I mean I I can articulate it, but I yeah. can't articulate it to somebody that has no concept that wasn't in the pitch meeting that then has to make a financial yeah. decision based on it. Yeah, but I can easily say. Oh no, it's a procedural inception. Yeah, no, that I mean, works. Like, everybody gets it, and now everybody gets yeah, it. Okay, it's yeah. a procedural inception, and now has like all this meaning that it didn't <laughs> have prior. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, and, and and you know, going back to like TV, movie, medium, like sometimes it's nice to have that thing that you can then you know, be the crux of your. Yeah. Of your, so in in that instance, it really is important to know what else, what your project is like, what you're quote unquote borrowing from, so you actually have a better chance of selling it. Precise. Sounds like if it's yeah. too obscure, then people are going to be like, I can't, I can't summarize this, so it's just going to get kicked to the curb. Again. Too obscure, or you, or you uh, reference a project that um, has a difficult past or was unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to remember the end result at the end of the day, and you shouldn't be the one that had no attachment to a former project defending how. But it could have been different. So and this you is never, what it is. So you never want to pitch anything and compare it to John Carter. That's that's a great way. To <laughs> that's what it. you're saying. That's a great way to put okay. it. Um, okay. You know, one of the things that I was able to do on my uh, t- towards my end as a development executive, when I really started to realize that my passion was was writing and storytelling beyond yeah. development, um, was when I was taking out a samurai project for television as a series, and I looked at the market. The reason I really thought that it could be done is because there were three active television series starring pirate shows or not starring pirates but but that that were that involved pirates yeah and pirates were pirates are not american based so they were really three international shows that were on network cable and premium cable this was around maybe 2013 okay 2013 okay okay um and and so i knew that the market was open the buyers were already open to telling these more international 
action-themed stories. And so I started thinking about what was missing in the marketplace. And so I... I so you naturally thought pirates versus ninjas, no one's told the ninja side of the nobody's story. Nobody's told the ninja side okay. of the story. Ever. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, beyond having just an affinity for the culture, it was like, well, there's, there's, there's real commercial value here. But, you know, pirates involved Caucasians. You know, and I'm at the end of the day, I still know that this is, you know, American Western market. How do I, how do I take this so inherently international show or really culture, you know, not international, but like, you know, an Asian concept show mm -hmm. and bring it commercial success in, in the States. And so I was able to find this point in history where East meets West. And it was the inciting incident for everything that then became the end of feudal Japan for 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 that um, oh wow for that samurai culture, and yeah. it took place in like the turn of the 18th century, and you know it involved uh, Dutch settlement and eventually Americans did when get Perry involved went over as well. There. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it was pre Perry, but like just like three decades prior, yeah. and and so like it was the point in time, and and I knew that. Again, there were so many buyers in television, and it was becoming, you know, Walking Dead and three pirate shows. What's a genre that's missing? This. And wow. so I remember, and I, you know, funny story, but I remember calling up stars and thinking, like, this is such a stars series. I can't mm -hmm. wait to talk to them. Like, they had, like, Blood and Sand on. They had one of the pirate shows on. And they tell me that... And after, like, me kind of going on about the world for, like, three, four minutes, oh, well, we just heard this. <laughs> what? Uh, I was like, what do you mean you just heard this? And they were like, yeah, we just we just heard this about, like, you know, kind of like a secret island where East and West met. And, yeah, all of, Sam Worthington was in here just a week ago pitching this. Like, he's all about this. <laughs> and then I end up finding through different kind of back channels that, yeah, Sam Worthington and I have competing projects. So we're Ooh. both taking out the same... Samurai world. Really? Um, so then it becomes a little bit of a hustle. Yeah. And I'm at a studio. So that gives me a little bit of leverage. And so we call up all of the, the usual suspects. And, you know, I realized very early on that the way to find success is to discount why we haven't seen it. And so that's how I went into every pitch. You know, every pitch is kind of different, getting back to your point in, like, structuring a pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... Every pitch is a little different, whether it's, you know, taking place with, you know, a bigger world, which this one was. It wasn't a character driven. It wasn't like a Breaking Bad pitch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a big world. But to have people buy into the big world, they needed to have a little bit of comfort into, well, why, why haven't we seen this? And so I just hit on all the reasons why we haven't seen it. Almost some of the prejudices. Mm -hmm. And by, like just knocking at those prejudices, it broke down the barriers enough where it's like, okay, now we can hear the story because like, yeah. I, I feel comfortable that like, and just putting it, you know, point blank, like, you know, half the faces being Asian won't turn my audience away. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's, that's how a buyer is thinking. Yeah. You know, um, which, you know, is as an artist, it's, it's very unflattering to hear sure. or yeah. to process. Yeah. But it's, you know, one of the things you have to do, and especially in TV being so... Um, numbers-based. So numbers-based, yeah. yeah. Um, really? Yeah. So, does Sam Worthington hate you now? We never met. And, <laughs> and even though I did set mine up, um, and I don't know what happened to his, 
Did yours ever get produced? Or Mine did it? not. No, it got set up at WGN America. Um, and this is, you know, going back to, uh, you know, helping, um. helping all the listeners. So this is the thing that I really, the, the end takeaway. TV is such a machine that um, it needs to be precisely packaged. Um, packaged with credits and experience, you know. Yeah. Something that I, I didn't even realize until years of development work is that the people that could sell TV weren't the people that were in their 20s or 30s or 40s coming into my office, generally. You know, not to be an ageist, but it was generally 40s, 50s, and 60s hmm. of the people that were That's good to the, the showrunners. Because you hear about the opposite, right? You hear about how when, when the television industry is looking for writers, they are much more notorious than film for looking for the young writers who can bring the new perspective yes. on yeah. the cutting edge yeah. of what society yeah. wants and is like so yeah. it's interesting to hear that at the top level that they still want the seasoned experienced vets that absolutely know because, what they're doing. because the, the writers rooms have been um, similar to kind of like how independent filmmaking has taken off like everything is now more in the hands of the creator so writers rooms don't even follow the structure that they used to yeah so the people that are familiar with the structure are inherently older <laughs> and uh and that structure has value yeah. the way that a writer's room works for television has value and right. if you are the young auteur giving or getting commissioned 10 episodes you may not know how a story should break down over 10 episodes yeah. and and how the character interactions and how the conflict should play and that's why, even though we're seeing so much TV, and some of it is fantastic, we are in the gold or yeah. platinum yep. or whatever you want to say era of television. You know, there are some shows that are really missing the mark, or even some great shows that people are like, "Oh, you know, this this season really took a miss." Now, can and, can I ask you just yeah, to please. cut you off? Yeah. Can you list like what you think two or three shows that really excel, and if you want to even mention two that you think fall short? With your executive hat on? Yeah. Do you have any opinions? Anything our listeners should be checking out? Well, it's really tough to sustain a show. And I'm a movie guy. I'm a movie guy. So I came from TV, but what I learned was like uh, the, the cinematic experience that I, that I, that it's transitioning to television, which I really appreciate, is tough to sustain. So I guess what I'm saying is I loved season one of The Leftovers. And I talk about it a lot with people. Okay. And and like I am I'm like that nitpicky where okay. like, you know, I won't say like watch this episode, like yeah. because I want somebody to have like a context of what TV is in multiple episodes. But like I feel like there's seasons that really work. And then okay. I think that there's a lot of things that just miss the mark, you know. Um yeah, I loved Game of Thrones and what it was. Especially that last season. Into, yeah, you know, I mean, but they, they they can kind of all have that. They all have that. Leftover seasons two and three did not fulfill me in the way that season mm-hmm. one did. So, like, you know, for me, I, um, I hold a very high benchmark, and I tell people that if you haven't seen The Sopranos, if okay. you haven't seen Deadwood, if you haven't watched The Wire. My God. Those, well, are, all those are three great. I got to tell you, though, Deadwood is one of my favorite shows I ever made. Yeah, I, I, it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's Shakespeare in the West. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, David Chase, what he did with The Sopranos, and not just in what it brought to television, because sometimes we like analyze 
filmmaking historically as to why it's the best because of everything that it allowed to come after it. No, The Sopranos is the best, not because of what it allowed to come after it, but because of also what it is and just how they held these beats and moments with characters and then fulfilled those characters so that I never felt that I wasn't respected as an audience member. Yeah. You know, like too too often. Yeah. Too often. I feel like, you know, showrunners and creators aren't respecting the audience living with these characters. And so like, you know, all three of those shows, when significant things happened, me, my friends, we were impacted. We were impacted watching them. We were impacted after, you know, Mm -hmm. when we talked about them. And I'm not saying that those experiences can't happen in Walking Dead or or what's some other hit shows that are on right now. I mean, Black Mirror is a great conversation piece that everybody's talking about. But in terms of like me and my sensibilities, taking that psychology degree and putting it to use, yeah. it's those three shows. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All okay. of which are HBO shows. Right? <laughs> All of which are HBO can't, shows. Can't help but feel there's a little bit of a bias there. You know what? I like to think that the person that was pro- I mean, like, they were all programmed by the same person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, you know, who, someone who, who, who yeah. knows what they're doing. Yeah, he just so happens to be kind of an awful person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, we find that sometimes, right? Sometimes the people that commission great projects seem to be awful. <laughs> okay, so now let's go into you as an artist. Mm-hmm. You have this background kind of in development, in psychology. Now you're a writer and director. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about some of your recent projects, how that experience has made you a better artist and filmmaker and businessman? And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of my development experiences, it goes back to what is original. You know, I know I was a tough critic on originality and saying nothing is original, but what mm-hmm. I really mean about that is like, even if you see something that to the viewer is original, it might follow a structure that under underneath it was derivative of something else, yeah. you know? And sure. so, like, that's that's been helpful for me. Like, I like to reference other projects when I'm building a project so I know that I'm not starting in a vacuum of nothing, yeah. you know? Like, I like to know that there's viability in the beginning, viability in the end, and i got to figure out all the parts. Yeah. Um, and so that that is then kind of launched me into having a voice you know, okay. I think one of the things that was inhibiting me earlier as a as a storyteller was that I could find the cool story but then to find the voice to tell the story yeah was was different okay and um, it really came with maturity people were like oh I didn't know you wanted to do this or what changed and neither of those things changed and I never felt like I did like a big career change because I went from developing stories which was a form of telling them mm-hmm. to telling stories yeah. um, but it was just the maturity of it for me um, I, I do think it, um, in terms of what a lot of writers tackle do you start with character you start with theme I start okay. with theme okay. Um, okay. interesting okay. I start with theme um, because that's going to carry my passion all the way through to the end project. Because Interesting. Like, I'm telling it not so much so that somebody can... can. I want them to relate to the characters, mm-hmm. so it's not that I don't, but I want them to uh, have a feeling about what they've seen at the end of it that doesn't have to be Makes attached okay. necessarily to a particular character. Sure, okay. 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 And so to do that... 
I liked starting with theme. And, uh, and that's what really transitioned me into a writer. Once I started realizing like, oh wait, the samurai thing that I pitched and all of its cool beats really could be playing off of like the, you know, the introverted and the extroverted culture of East and West. Yeah. And the dichotomy of how these two cultures that have risen, you know, to you know, form these the, these powers over almost like two to three millennia, how they now are meeting and almost meeting kind of for the first time, or, yeah. or in a context where like technology will never keep them apart again. Yeah, yeah. That's where it was all. So like, I wouldn't have thought of those things. Yeah. Until maturity, kind of, and right. thinking about like where that can go, and that well, doesn't necessarily help in a pitch, but it, it helps as a writer. But it does help. I mean, it, I do see how. If you're telling that story, how that's very different than I'm trying to follow the life of this one individual in this point of time. Mm-hmm. Because then, as you said, you can apply that across, you know, the, the, the Eastern characters and the Western characters and, and your heroes and your villains. And, right, you know how to integrate every, sub, you know, character that you develop into that equation. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense when you break it down that way. It, it helps me as, as a map and kind of... Um charting where we need to go okay it's not helpful to pitch because <laughs> it's way too heavy okay. and um people need character and references in a pitch you okay. know not to like belittle my former position but like nobody wants to have an hour-long philosophical conversation that they then have to then have <laughs> with their boss yeah. you know nobody yes. likes that everybody wants to hinge it on a character and a reference or two and what the world can be, or, or characters in the yeah. world. But in terms of what struck me into getting into writing stories and why I feel like I'm going to be a storyteller for life, it's because of finding that that theme that I want to explore, and then what best services that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Very cool. Gotcha. You want to talk movies? Yeah, let's do some movie talk. You want to talk some I movies? I want to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Not that we haven't been doing that already, but yeah. you yourself are a movie guy. I am a movie guy more than a TV guy. Sorry so, to, all right. Back 10 years for television. I'm going to throw this out there. Years for television. In your opinion, as a writer, director, development executive, what is your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. God. There you go. Just an awful movie. No. It, Lawrence of Arabia is pretty great. Sell, sell me on Lawrence of Arabia because... Film teachers, uh, cinematographers, AFIlists, you know, people who score films have all been telling me that this is the greatest movie ever. And honestly, Steven Spielberg, I would list it as probably like one of the top five most overrated movies. Top five most overrated films. Dang. Wow. Yeah. We gotta we gotta flip that list over. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can certainly show it some love if it's uh, if it's getting some hate in the room. Um, I was getting a lot of hate from this yeah. guy right here. First off, you know, I can only see, I, every film is personal. That's what I love. Okay. That's what I love about filmmaking. You know, I, at least for myself as a filmmaker, I don't hope to reach the audiences in full love. I just want to reach the audiences. Okay. You know? So, so I respect your opinion. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> for me personally, growing up in West Virginia, first off, it's a, a beautiful location. 
know, it's the opposite of where I grew up. Okay. It's in every way. In, mm-hmm. in every yeah. way. You know, um, the desert is not Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> I was drawn to it, and I'll never forget being 14 years old and talking to it about my friends, and they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then I was, and I was like, and I haven't even finished it yet, because it's like, it's long. It's long. Yeah. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia has an intermission. It does have an yeah. intermission, yeah. The thing that started to speak to me in terms of story and why I couldn't stop telling my friends about it, even though I couldn't articulate it even at the time, is that it just seemed to encompass everything that that art form could be. And I hadn't seen anything like that before. And so from its staging, to its acting, to its sound design, to its editing, to its cinematography, to its score, if I didn't mention it, it just encompassed every element and it almost seemed to do it in a level of perfection. Not that you can really perfect what a shot is or what a moment is. I did kind of revisit it recently thinking about this podcast because for me, I'd watched it so many times. And yeah. then when it launched universally in like 200 theaters in 70 millimeter, I saw it that day. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, like I couldn't, like I took off work, I saw it that day. <laughs> because it spoke to me on that level. And I've probably seen it over a hundred times at this point. And a lot of it is just passive viewing. And so like I did kind of actively watch it again. And it's everything from the believability for me of the performances to the transition scenes that Lean does brilliantly through his career, but some of the best ever in this movie from like blowing out a match that gives us this beautiful character description in such a short amount of time Mm -hmm. to then transitioning to the desert. You know, and the vastness of that, you know, shot in that great cinema scope. And, and also thinking about the transition of that scene, not just from its visual, but from, but f- and from what it symbolizes in a match going to the sun and the horizon, mm-hmm. but also the, the breath blowing out the match and breathing life into the next scene. There's so many transition yeah. cuts in this film that I don't think they could be teed up in a better way. And I think okay. that it kind okay. of did leverage, not to talk about it too too much in terms of uh, historicism, but I think so many filmmakers learn from what Lean did, particularly in that film. Because, like, again, like, there, there are a lot of cuts where it'll be a sound cut paired with a sound cut, but the sounds are just a little off, but they work, and we're in two completely different worlds between mm-hmm. the cuts. Yeah. Or it'll be Anthony Quinn saying that he's going to take us to his home, and as he extends his arm, the next shot is a view of his home zooming into it from this huge pan out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, just always bringing the viewer in, you know, the exchange between O'Toole and Omar Sharif, where uh, they need to figure out the next. And kind of the next place to conquer mm-hmm. and how Omar Sharif comes into screen when they say that they need to go to Aqaba. Yeah. The little power dynamics with very minimal camera movement. Okay. When I look at it from a, from a different lens, it's like the opposite of anything that could then be done in the steady cam world because it's all like locked off cameras, actors. It could almost be a play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost be I can a see play that. I can see that. Beautiful backstaging. Yeah. But, but they take it one step further where you're actually immersed in the world you're in it the score keeps you in it the the moments of triumph for, you know for instance when lawrence goes into the desert to find 
to find the lost soul and bring him back. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that is kind of storytelling in its way, in a way, in a meta way, where he's like, no story is written, and that is film, you know? Like, yeah. it's not done until it's completed. Yeah. The thematics, like, uh, you know, because that's where I start. It involves, <laughs> it involves politics, geopolitics, race, religion, war, British imperialism, going back to the, the politics. But there's just, like, just a lot of elements that, um, that all wrap up into the story of a character. And so, like, that's yeah. why it, like, always spoke to me. It's like, it never got too heady for the film. It never extended the character beyond a place of believability for me. Okay. And there's just a lot of films that I love, but that's one that just seems to just, like, check so you much have off. done it justice right now. Wow, that's quite a, quite a sales pitch. <laughs> quite a... So if you haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, Harrison will tell you you should. I'll tell you you should not. Unless I feel like with a you cut. should be advocating that they should, either way, <laughs> just join me on my side. Yeah, yeah. You, you should find it on uh, Netflix and I get like, you know, 1% from every little <laughs> <laughs> No, I get it. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the cinematography. It does some stuff that I think is, is really stunning, which, I mean, when you think about the fact that at the time they made it, it's a bunch of people crawling around in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> Being like, hey, we're going to shoot a movie that has no women. <laughs> um, it's in a part of the world that a lot of the audience members at the time knew nothing about. It, it's an ambitious project. Yeah. I wish there was a way they could find it, you know, to cut 80 minutes out of the story. And I think, I think for me, <laughs> I think the real issue is, and you'll probably disagree, I think that the character of T.E. Lawrence in the film, mm-hmm. we don't see a ton of growth from him. You'll be like, I disagree. And I think that even, even the fact that when... He, spoiler, he gets he gets tortured. He does. Quote-unquote humbled. Yeah. He's not really humbled. He's still the same T.E. Lawrence that he was for well, most he, of he, like, movie. tries not to be, but... Um, oh, he becomes so much worse. He becomes, he becomes the worst version of himself after that. And then he goes and massacres a bunch of people. Yeah. Because he's now felt some of the pain that he's been dealing out, and he's, he's hardened, and he's um, bitter... He's yeah. bitter, you know, like he was very uh, passionate about where the direction of the world can be. Optimistic and naive. Yeah. And that optimism and naivety allowed him to cross the desert when everybody told him not to and survive it, you know, and yeah. then go back and find somebody and survive it. But then when he's actually confronted, when he goes gallivanting into the Turks region and they, you know, probably rape him and torture him. Well, then he comes out a little different. And, and it is built a little bit in context with the relationship of uh, Sheriff Ali. But you do get the sense that like, he's now a man on a mission for him when he was more on a mission a greater good. And that does come across when he massacres. It does come across <laughs> when he, um, you know, as it, as it generally does. You know, people that massacre generally aren't thinking about, you know, other people than themselves. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there's that. So I would say reevaluate that part, or maybe just maybe you should just watch the massacre scene like a couple times, <laughs> a couple times, force it, or uh, you know just play the scene with the Turk and be like, yeah, I wonder what happened between this scene with him getting his skin pinched and then him being thrown into the back alley. See, and maybe you can thing. see the character. I part. think you just want me to waste another four hours watching. No, I've I've pinpointed very specific moments. That's only like two hours. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I mean his character is is interesting in the sense that it, it's almost like constantly he's reevaluating his own identity. Right, he kills someone, and and it's kind of like that. I 
thought I would feel way worse or like yeah you know he's constantly in this internal conflict but like you said you know where he ends up and what his actions do you're like wow that's you know pretty crazy it is pretty crazy and, so, and it's a course that anybody's capable of because we've seen it in the course of history yeah i mean for me personally one of the things that like lawrence of arabia it just holds up so well i mean it looks as good as you know any movie that would be released now does and it, um, when did that movie come out 70s 64 64 okay yeah so you think like wow this was shot that long ago you know before 64 and if you were to put that on the screen right now it would be as beautiful if not more beautiful than most movies that come out now mm-hmm. it's quite impressive especially when you consider movies you know from that you know you watch like old like i don't know oceans 11 or something you're like totally a product of its time yeah it feels like it's from that time yeah you watch lawrence of arabia you're like shoot and those david lean epics are very specific bridge on the river Kwai. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Shivaga. Yeah. Uh, I like them all. But it's a lot of locked off shots with power dynamics and yeah. blocking. I'll give you that. Longer yeah. takes, allowing yeah. your actors to actually feel the moments and like us feel more a little bit voyeuristic. You know, I think that's one thing that we've lost in cinema with so many edits and cuts right, is yeah. that we've lost the longer take and the voyeurism of listening in on a scene, yeah. you know, because we. We can feel the scene if it's one take. You know, there's that yeah. one take in yeah. Vertigo that I love, you know, when he's oh, first yeah. finding out about yes. the case. And yes. it's like, and it's, and it's all this great blocking and staging and, you know, what are they doing? And then the little things that, that Lean will do, for instance, like, you know, the handing of a business card, the person looking at the business card, and then the person that has the business card in the third cut is a new person. You know, so like little ways to transition so seamlessly that these locked off shots allow yeah. where if we were moving all around, around yeah. then it would be lost. No, that's a good be, point. We would that's be confused. Point. Oh, wait, point. we were just we were just in this place and now we're in this place? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of things that I've learned from the simplicity and the complexity that he added, how a lot of that wouldn't work today. And, you know, keeping it simple, how simple can work. Wow. Yeah. You love your film. I do love my film. <laughs> and I love this film. I will defend this film, even though it does not have any women in it. But that's okay. <laughs> Technically, there's sirens that are probably uncredited up from the cliffs. Like they, they yeah. Like That's they, true. And I mean, obviously, um, when the movie was made and the time that the movie was made about, right in mm-hmm. early 1900s. So I, I get it. You know, part of the world. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. It's just some people even discredit it now because of uh, the role that like Sir Alec Guinness played. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I mean, playing. Prince Faisal. You know, I don't... I, I, certainly as an artist, I never think that we should look at things in that light. No, we can't look evaluate art through the lens that we look at the world today. Right. Because it's a different time and place. Yeah, and it's not fair to those artists at the time. They did incredible work, and they, yeah. you know, they weren't, you know... I mean, they did incredible work. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's... and it. I mean, how can we judge something 50 years later with what we consider acceptable? Oh, we can. <laughs> and we will. And we'll we go, can, and go we to will. Twitter about it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll handle that on Twitter. Okay. Well, Harrison, I'll, I'll tell you this: I will, I will, I will rewatch this movie. I will rewatch it over, over the over the course of a week. You sound like you're sacrificing. Yeah. I yeah, am. I know, sacrific- I know, I'm, I'm I sacrificing like a half a, yeah. half a day here. Like, yeah. yeah, this is a sacrifice. <laughs> it's funny because one of the I I don't make a point to see Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> okay. And two times ago, okay. I saw it. Believe it or not, I was actually in college, and I saw it with this guy. Yeah, we were in a film class, and I remember I was like, "I hate this movie so much." I'm just, I said, "I gotta finish writing this paper." You know, it's a good three hours. So I was like, "I'm gonna finish writing this paper, and then I'm gonna fall asleep." I need you to stay awake so you can take notes. 
So I finished typing up my paper. 15 minutes later, I turn over and this guy's passed out. And I'm like, mother effer. I'd already seen it. Though. Now I have to stay awake <laughs> and watch this freaking movie that I can't stand again. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate it. College. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. But yeah. I saw Lawrence of Arabia when I was, I don't know, younger. Early teens, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was really good. Liked it then. Didn't like it enough the second time. No, I don't even think that was probably the third time I'd seen it. It's college. I was probably hungover. <laughs> Whatever. So you saw it on the big screen, though, Harrison. I did. Yeah. See, I almost I feel like that probably does a lot of justice for the film, just because. Made for the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm willing to bet yeah. that you get much more from seeing it in, you know, yeah, the biggest and, possible. And remastered in 4K. Matter yeah. of fact. Um, both Scorsese and uh, Omar Sharif did a little intro, like like a. It wasn't live, I guess it was taped because it was like in two hundred theaters. But they all did like a little intro for the four K remastering of really? it, and cool. uh, seeing uh, seeing Omar Sharif, Sheriff Ali's character, come from the desert in that shot by the well mm-hmm. in four K, fucking awesome. Really? Yeah. Because okay. like I've always loved that still shot. I mean, the line where he says the well is everything, like. That that is geopolitics at its core. Like it's the I'll essence. Give you that. I'll give you the that. essence of the whole film is right there. Like you know, we have to disregard the fact that that we're both humans. We instead realize that this is tribal survival, and this is what matters. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, and they play that out in what could be a play, and yet it's the most like cinematic thing. That we could kind of write. Has anyone know? adapted it to a play? No, because it's a beautiful movie. No, I, 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 I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah. I think the yeah. first time I saw it, though, I watched it with my dad, and it was on TV. So back then, it was like full screen. I didn't even get the yeah full thing. And then I, we watched it again in uh, that film class I was talking about in my high school uh, with Nick Nolte. He was my professor, but he showed us that movie. So that I think those were the two times I saw it before, and that was cool because he had. I mean, at that point, it was a projector and. Everything was the right aspect ratio, but the first time I saw it was on TV, yeah. commercials and all that. Not the same. No, because it's probably like eight hours with commercials. <laughs> it would be yeah. <laughs> day long marathon. Okay, okay, all right. As I said, I'll check it out. You know, I, to our listeners, I would love to know your thoughts on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Are you with Harrison and it's just this masterpiece of cinema? Or are you like me and it's a little bit better than a piece of crap? Wow. <laughs> that's really low that's a uh, you know it's like if you were rating it out of 10 you know I, I think you coming in and being like it's overrated would be like maybe a 7 or an 8 <laughs> he's saying it's a 10 I think you just described it as like a 2 yeah. Maybe yeah, like that, that went really like low a, like a 3.5 <laughs> oh man do you like any movies with inter- intermission? Is that like a disqualification? Oh, no, no. I okay. love, okay. you know, Spartacus, Ben-Hur. Like, right. I don't have a problem with the classic epic genre either. I okay. love it. I don't have a problem oh, with right. most of my favorite movies are in black and white, uh-huh. which obviously Lawrence of Arabia is not. But it's what not I'm saying, I don't mind the old style of yeah, cinema. Yeah. I just... Arab culture. You just hate it. Wow. No, not the truth <laughs> at all. Thank you for making me out to be a racist. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, Let's go to Twitter. No, just <laughs> as I said, I just I feel that it, it just it runs a, a little okay. long, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. if, if you could trim it up a bit, I think it would. The point is, well, you guys can trash me on Twitter as well, <laughs> Harrison. We really appreciate you coming on. Honor, can guys. you give us a sh- you know what what some of the stuff that you're working on now? Some of the you have any projects that are in the works or anything that you're shipping out to festivals or, or 
Anything yeah. that people should maybe uh, keep an eye out for. Yeah, totally, totally. Our film, Crosswinds, is making its round of film festivals right now. We That is the short that uh, was uh, inspired by Dostoevsky. And then uh, worked with a filmmaking partner on that. And we're gearing up some new projects. Nice. We've got nice. Uh, two shorts that we want to be working on, or are working on, one in prep. And then uh, we're working on our first feature. And awesome. uh, right now... Beyond the script in that, uh, and uh, once we finalize the script, we're going to be going out to investors, but that's Dude, something that very is... Very exciting, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's close for us Congrats. in terms of a, a real potential. Um, it's a supernatural thriller, and we're really cool. excited about Dude, it. Dude, that's great. Um, and to our audience, I mean, if, if you don't mind sending me links, I will be sure to blast them out so I will check out Crosswinds. I will, and... absolutely. You can check out Crosswinds. You can check out the other short that I did called Dad's BS. Those are the first two shorts that we've done thus far cool. that have launched my filmmaking career as a writer, Fantastic. director, awesome. producer, Fantastic. and I'm excited. And after you shoot your feature, we'll have to have you back on. Oh, hell yeah. Because that's going to be great to talk about. Yes. Um, do you have any shout-outs? Anyone you got to, you know, give a shout-out to so you're not disowned by your mom or well, your hometown? <laughs> I can't or... be disowned by my mother. Got to give a shout-out to my mother and my sister. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, every filmmaking, every filmmaker knows that it, it takes... It, 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 it takes an army and that army begins at home so yeah. you should always thank the people that are closest to you that support you your friends okay. your family um, and then yeah I mean I, a shout out to Taliesin Nexus because they uh, gave me a lot of support in a way that I wasn't able to find as a filmmaker cool. and they empowered me going from a development executive to an auteur and I thank them for that and uh, and all the relationships that I've made because again it takes an army so you got to keep meeting people fantastic people, fantastic yeah, embrace it um, where can people connect with you yes uh, I'm a bit of a uh, what would you say uh, luddite no recluse <laughs> uh, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah a little bit of a social media hermit and so you can find me only on Instagram at Harrison Wade R Harrison Wader okay okay handle there yeah. okay fantastic. Oh, all good things come. Thanks for coming on, man. We yeah, really thank you so much. It. Thank you guys. This was fantastic. Lawrence of Arabia. Love promoting Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. How about that, huh? All right, well, thank you so much again. We, we really enjoyed the episode. I hope our audience uh, sends us some feedback and comments as soon as everything's out. Um, throw it over to you. Take us out, CP. Listen, you guys got any questions or, or, or uh, comments or just want to spread your hatred for Lawrence, then by all means, hit us up. You can find me at IndieCal5 or anywhere your social media takes you. And you can find him at... At Big Kid D-Man. Thanks for listening to another episode, and uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>